0: Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. The days are getting cooler and it's hard to believe the leaves will start changing soon. To me, it feels like we didn't even get a proper summer. But on today's Let Me Be Frank, Bishop Caggiano will talk about his fondest memories of fall and he'll give us some reflections on the changing of the season for Catholics. But before we get into it, we're coming up on the first ever on-air pledge drive for Veritas Catholic Network. This is your Catholic station and your station needs you right now. The pledge drive will be on October 5th through the 9th, so please tell your friends they can find solid Catholic teaching and uplifting conversations on the radio and on their phones at 1350 a.m. and on the Veritas Catholic Network app. And then be sure to listen and to call in during the week of October 5th. Let's keep your station going strong. Okay, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank, everybody. As I said, I'm Steve Lee, and it's my pleasure to introduce the Bishop of Bridgeport, Bishop Frank Caggiano. Steve, it's good to be with you, and I'm really excited about our topic today. I'm glad to hear that, Excellency, (laughs) Uh, because the air is getting cooler, and uh, it does smell different, and um, Mm -hmm. I guess just just like the spring signals change, really, Mm -hmm. autumn really signals change too, maybe even more so.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very much so. And, and this time of year is my favorite time of year for so many different reasons. Hmm. Um, in part, I remember when I was growing up as a little boy or even as a, as a teenager, you know, the summer wears thin on you by the time you get to the end of August because there was so much unstructured time that, you know, lots of people speak of boredom Mm -hmm. But honestly, as I look back, it was almost like a sense of like, now what do I do? Right. So autumn signaled the coming of school. And I was one of those kids that actually liked going to school. (laughs) I liked the structure. I liked the routine. And I loved being taught by the Dominican Sisters of Kentucky at Simon and Jude. It was, I just loved school. And they were great, they really were. You know, sometimes you hear horror stories about religious, well, I don't know what they're talking about because I've had no such experience in my life. Yeah. So that started it off. And of course, Labor Day unofficially ends summer. And growing up in the city, school started two days later. Mm -hmm. So it it signaled, to your point, like a big transition, right? Um, But I mean, in my family, we had so many changes that occurred. Um, traditions we had that were cultural, that made the season so ever more beautiful in my mind. Like, I'll give you a perfect example. Because we had no air conditioning, because my father thought that was like too modern growing up, we had fans growing up, Uh, mom did not bake during the summer. Otherwise, we would have died. We would have lived <laughs> on the street. It would have been impossible, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> but come fall, as soon as it cooled off, like these last, you know, almost week, we've had some really beautiful weather,
0: mm-hmm. she
1: would bake. Mm. And my mother was a great baker. And of course, the speciality was her bread, which I've spoken about before, but I cannot tell you, I cannot underestimate for you how delicious that bread was. When it was all fresh ingredients coming out of the oven, still warm, literally still warm. Wow. And every Wednesday she made bread because every Wednesday was release time. So we had school till a little before one o'clock. And then we went home for the day and uh, public school students came for religious education. And our Catholic school teachers taught religious ed at that time. So... um, so we would come home, my sister and I, have lunch. Then mom would knead the bread, of which every once in a while I would give a, you know, take a crack at it. Usually cause a t- tremendous mess, but I would give, <laughs> give it a hand. And then she would place it um, in a warm place to, uh, to rise. And because our basement was our live-in area... You know, she would sometimes put it literally on top of the uh the heating system, the boiler, as we called it. Mm. You know, in a dish with a towel, and then it would rise a bit. She bake, and then by snack time, which was about three thirty, four o'clock, out it came. And if we wanted what she would call frizzelli, which was bread that was cut up in slices, rebaked to be cursed cris- it's gigantic croutons, is really what it was. Oh. <laughs> right? And with uh Olive oil, balsamic vinegar, and a little salt. I mean, you're ready to die. This was the this was the celestial banquet. This was like, oh who cares goodness. about dinner? This was it, and that was the tradition until we got to Christmas time, right? And then in Advent she switched over, and then she started making cookies, which was even better, <laughs> right through Christmas. So so those and, and then there were other traditions as well. I don't know if you w- w- you want to chat about them. I mean, it's I d- up to you. I but. do.
0: I'm just, as you're talking, I'm just sitting here. I can smell the bread. Oh. Going, you know, the, the smell going all oh through the house.
1: Gosh. Oh, my God. And then she would make a frittata, which I love. It's my favorite food. Eggs, cheese, sometimes potatoes, sometimes asparagus, sometimes spinach, sometimes broccoli with that. Uh, you know you, people spend five hundred dollars to go to a fancy restaurant and they eat this i don't know what they eat cold beef meat beef or whatever oh you, you keep it honestly keep it okay uh, this is this is what they used to call peasant food well, you know the peasants were really bright people for anybody who is who's interested, really bright not only did they survive but they lived a good, wholesome life anyway yeah so Autumn also signaled two other traditions. Yes. First was uh, the making of uh, uh, tomato sauce, which my mother made once a year. And that was a huge production. Yeah. So in the day, she would make between 250 and 300 bottles (laughs) that would last the whole year, but only last a year. Wow. And the tomatoes came out usually at the end of August, beginning of September. So, what was involved? So all the bottles had to be washed and dried. all the lids had to be rebought because you could not reuse them right because of the seals. You had to uh, wash out the drums and clean them because they were boiled in huge drums outside overnight and in the old days, I remember my father used to make all these contraptions to heat the you know, literally make a fire and then he he modernized and he got um, a little tripod that was gas powered, you know, with a, the same gas tank you would use on a, on a barbecue. Mm-hmm. So that was like a modern innovation, right? It's the, it's just, but then the tomatoes would come. Well, first of all, they had to negotiate buying the tomatoes, which was always an ordeal. That should have been filmed. That would have been its own comedy <laughs> show. Because the man would come, everybody would come out. It was one step above bedlam. Um, he would have bushels, five, six, seven hundred bushels on his truck. So between my relatives, my aunts, everybody, he would sell all of them in a few hours. Wow. And who wants to see them? Who wants to taste them? Who wants to look at them? Who wants to weigh them? Arguing this price, that price, the other price. Honestly. Right right in the the street. Oh, gosh, it was something to be seen. Wow. (laughs) So mom would get 13, 14, 16, 18 bushels of tomatoes, depending. And the majority she made, in literally tomato sauce that would be for, you know, our pasta and lasagna and pizza and all the rest. And then she would bottle some that were just chopped up because that would be for la pizzaiola and that would be for if you wanted to get fancy and you wanted to make pizza that way or if you wanted these friselle. I mean, so my job was washing them. Mm -hmm. Now imagine we're in the middle of Brooklyn. (laughs) Okay, and we do this twice a year. Once for tomatoes and once for, which we'll get to later, what my father used to do. And we would wash all the tomatoes by hand, all of them, thousands of them, thousands of them, thousands of them on tarps, that the tarps had to be washed. And for my mother, they had to be washed and rewashed and they had to make sure they were spotless because my mother, cleanliness, she believed was next to godliness, period. So, and then we had all these tomatoes down the driveway on these tarps. (laughs) And we had to stay in guard to make sure no dust, no dirt, no filth, no animals, nothing went on them, right? For hours. (laughs) It was unbelievable. And then she would grind them. And again, in the old days, she did it by hand. And my father would help by hand. Wow. You know, 14 bushels. You are talking about six, seven, eight hours of work. I don't know how they had the stamina to do it, honestly. Yeah. And as I got older, I tried to help too. And then eventually we modernized and got a little motor. That was another innovation. That was like we went into the early part of the 20th century at that point. (laughs) Luckily, your dad allowed that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, even that point he was in. Because I think he also got tired after all of that. (laughs) You know what I mean? And, and then you'd have to do the first time, then you have to do it the second time, then you do it the third time. Then you'd have to throw out all the skins, literally, the only thing left was skins. Then you had to the fill of them all. Right. And before you fill them, after they were washed, they had to be boiled. Hmm. All the bottles had to be boiled to make sure there was no bacteria. So you wash them by hand, dry them, boil them, cool them, fill them, seal them, and then put them inside these, these, these really barrels. And they had to be brought to a boil and simmered all night long. Wow. And my dad had this, this rule of thumb that um, the pota- he would put potatoes in them, in these barrels. God knows where these barrels came from, I have no idea. He put the potatoes in the, in the barrels and they had to, the potatoes had to be cooked. So because by the time you threw them in, it was just simmering, it would take literally all night to make sure that there is you know, no botulism, God forbid. And I remember my father's breakfast those mornings were the potatoes. You couldn't make it up. But a mug of, of coffee and the potatoes, he was like as happy as a lark, he knew <laughs> it was done. Then they had to cool off, come out, put in boxes, store it, the whole thing. And yet I look back on those days and I, I loved it. Yeah. Because we did it every year. See, that's the power of tradition. Tradition is extremely important because it passes on identity and it reinforces a sense of belonging because you do the rituals together and they bind you in a way that is different from any other way during the year. So we ate together every Sunday, almost every night, but every Sunday. But it meant something different that the sauce we were eating, we made together. Mm-hmm. We made it all together. My sister helped, everyone helped. Yeah. Right? Fascinating stuff. It was just, it was beautiful. And then, wine. Aha. So my father, the general, came in and gave orders. Boom. This is how you do it. And he... um he took such pride in the making of his wine. Again, you know, my father was not very well educated, as I've shared, and he was an immigrant. And therefore, you know, growing up in a country where you didn't speak the language and people, you know, were white-collar workers and they went to offices. And, you know, I'm sure that was not always easy for my father, mm-hmm. right? Back in Italy, where many of them, where he grew up were laborers and farmers and just, you know, shopkeepers he would have fit in um, more easily. Sure. But here he found his niche, right? So this he took great pride in because from beginning to end is what he did. And that was the October ritual, more or less. And it was kind of the same thing, right? The the grapes came. My father was a much more vocal negotiator than my mother. My mother was... (laughs) far more meek, and my father was far more in your face, right? And it was not uncommon. He would go tell people, well, he would go, he's, well, (laughs) he would tell them he didn't want the grapes, let's put it that way, (laughs) okay? A very colorful language. And he would wait for, because he knew for grapes, there was more than one vendor, right? So... So he and the neighbors, and sometimes my uncles, whomever conspired as to who, what, and what they were going to do, and what Uh they were going to pay, and all the rest. And he did the same thing. He he got them, and he would wash them, same way we'd wash tomatoes, and he would grind them, and um, that he did by hand. And you know what? Again, it was a remarkable feat of perseverance and endurance to do that. Yeah. And he went through multiple grindings, bottled it, it would start to ferment. He would have to move them from container to container to strain out all of the sediment. Mm -hmm. And after a few of those, by the time you got to Thanksgiving, right, see, because he put them in barrels, then from barrels into five-gallon jars, and then from the five-gallon jars into smaller jars. And then eventually, I would think by, well, I, I mean, I wasn't there for all of that, to be honest. Uh-huh. But I would think by December, they were in their permanent home. The wine was in its permanent home. And then it would sit there and ferment. The only thing my father did not quite get, all right, no offense, Dad, but without sulfites and without preservatives, that sort of wine did not really last okay. very long. It would last a year, maybe a year and a half. Two. My father thought it lasted forever. So he kept wine, some bottles that were 10 years old, and he would drink it. Isn't this great? Oh, my God. It was awful. God, it was awful. The future couldn't tell him that because I valued my life. I valued self-preservation. Self-pres- <laughs> so I would just, you know, not say much. And growing up, I didn't really, um, I didn't really um, drink much wine at the table. Very rarely. Even though it was there and it was offered, yeah, because I mean it, w- it wasn't my thing, yeah. So, the smells of the wine. You know the uh, the sight of my father sleeping on a uh, beach chair, outside overnight. Um, the cleanings and the, and the tarps and I remember I actually remember being disappointed when the tarps were put away Hmm. because of the family common labor. And then I reflect as I grow older how, you know, and even to this day in rural areas where families have chores that mark their life and the chores are rituals, but they bind the family together in many ways in our modern life, we have lost that connection and I would encourage everyone to consider who's listening to consider the traditions that they grew up with and if they have been lost what a blessing it would be to consider what can be retrieved and not just for family identity but for cultural identity and for quite frankly to bring greater unity to the family.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Yes, I will. I I could tell you, I when my father opened his first bottle of wine that he made, I can't I can't describe the look he would have on his face. It was a mixture of probably what Napoleon had on his face when he when he walked into Paris, right, having (laughs) conquered the place. Between that and just deep, deep joy. I mean, and and the first time he opened the first bottle, so it was a liter bottle. The liter was done. My father <laughs> drank the whole liter. You know, heaven or hell would not move him from that table till he finished that bottle. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it would really, I look back on it, and of course as a kid, I mean, I noticed, but it was not a big deal, but now that I'm, you know, semi-ancient, I look, I think back, and I, I think, yeah, yeah, those are the memories of uh, a history bigger than us. Yeah. Because his father did that, and his father before him did that.
0: Right. Right. Right? And your mother's mother with the tomato sauce.
1: Uh, without a doubt. And of course, they also made cheese. They made sibrasada. There was the, in Italy, there was the annual killing of the pig that would come either at the end of fall or in winter. And that's where they had their meats and they Mm. cured them all and they smoked them. And they made their own mozzarella and they made their own cheeses until now in modern times they bought them. So, I mean, there was a whole ritual. And then in Italy, of course, as I mentioned before, the first step in autumn or late summer, into early was the gathering of the wood that they would need for their for their fires. They hmm. had no central heating, hmm. so that in and of itself was a, a multiple week process. Because consider all the wood you would burn over the and we still do it. So lots of people do, but they do it like in Connecticut. We do it. Many people do it because the vast majority have fireplaces and they use it to, you know, gather family together and gather some heat for the house. But there is central heating. I mean, so if they, yeah. if worse comes to worse, they could always turn it on. <laughs> but there, there was no alternative. No alternative. So those rituals obviously did not come, but they kept the ones they could. So now for myself and my sister and my niece and nephew and the, and my niece's children, so with three generations past, um, those traditions did not continue. Mm-hmm. So it is a loss, yeah. and I'm almost tempted to reconsider starting them again for the sake of my great niece and great nephew. So we jumpstart the, the other two generations so they could, and of course not on the scale my mother did, Lord have mercy, but I may mean, be able to do it, as a, for, I'm too tired to do that. I couldn't <laughs> I don't have the stamina to do that. 300 but, bottles, let's go. <laughs> oh no, but let's say, well, let's say we did 50 or 40. Yeah. Yeah. Just to keep the tradition alive. I mean, wouldn't there be a value to do that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And and your niece and nephew or your great-great-niece and nephew, they would probably think it was so cool.
1: Oh, yeah. Yes. In fact, my nephew, it's fascinating. A few weeks ago, my nephew and I had a heart-to-heart talk about traditions. And how he very much wants to reclaim some of the traditions my mother and father had for which I'm very proud of him. Yeah. To even raise the con- and most of them revolve around the holidays. Not around fall. So what mom and dad would do at Christmas and Easter. That is most fascinating to him and quite frankly I don't my mother taught me how to do it. But I don't remember it has been so long but there are still cousins and relatives alive who are as old as my, my mother would have been 88, hmm. that do know. So I think the order of business is when we have our next family powwow is to be able to sit down and really think through, do we really wanna do this and invite those relatives over and learn from them. Let yeah. them teach us what to do and trial and error. Cause mom had no real recipe per se, she just knew what to do. I mean, she just did it. It's like right. semi-magical. But the rest of us mere humans, we have to figure out how to do it. So I mean, um, and that actually excites me. It does.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Then there's the comfort food. Oh, I could keep going. We could talk about this all podcast long. Then there's the comfort food. You knew, you knew autumn was here when mom made escarole and beans. And I can't tell you how much I enjoy escarole in beans. There Mm. there are a few words I can think. One, because it's delicious. Two, because it's the ultimate comfort food, I think. And, oh my God, and you were full and it it was, and the beans, of course, I'm not a big fan of beans on their own, but in escarole, yeah, because you couldn't have escarole without beans. I mean, it just, it, it doesn't work. And mom would make a huge pot. Honest to God, it must have been a five-gallon pot. Was, I, I don't even know where it went, but it was, you, <coughs> you could wash your baby in that pot easily. It's <laughs> like a little bathtub. And she, I, got, I don't know, honey pounds, because it stays great. So you had it for a whole week, right? So it was not uncommon. <laughs> for if where I wanted a snack, that was the snack. And I welcome that more than ringdings and devil dogs and whatever mm. else. We had Oreo cookies, although I had those too, I suppose. But uh, coming home from school at 3.30, you would have a little bowl with, again, a piece of bread. It's not yeah. mother of the saints, really. I'm
0: picturing it with your mom's bread and your dad's wine. Mm.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, the wine I didn't have. Although, <laughs> in hindsight, it would have completed the meal. But no, I, that wasn't quite. I wasn't quite old enough. I've gotten... Yeah. I've gotten so many
0: emails from people Excellency, who say that they also grew up in Brooklyn and the stories that you tell they're like, oh, it reminds me of my childhood and um it's it just mm-hmm. great I always when when I was thinking about this uh, this episode, I was picturing you as a child up on up on your a rooftop and it's nighttime in Brooklyn mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you can see your breath because the weather's starting to get colder and mm-hmm. and and you Excellency are gazing up at the stars in the sky because I know you, you love astronomy, as we
1: talked about before, so oh yeah so, and the, <laughs> and the, and, the, and the other thing it's funny you should say that is because um, the horizon, the vista would clear in the autumn in the city, because you know the humidity was so oppressive and and so long lasting that just like we had last week when the when the temperature cools and the winds come from the north, the sky is beautiful mm. And now in the pandemic, it's even bluer than I remember it ever being, right? Because our, you know, our travel. Although now I think our travel is beginning to go back to pre-pandemic kind of proportions, because the merit is uh, is as aggravating as it o- has always <laughs> been. But um, it was, yeah, there was a Christmas. You're, you're absolutely right. There was a Christmas. It was. It was clear. It was. It was refreshing, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was. And there's one other ritual. It's just personal now. It had nothing to do with my parents. It's me. And I have taken tremendous grief for on this ritual, and I don't care. People don't like it, don't look. That's the old philosophy, <laughs> okay. okay? But my hat, you know, I have taken a lot of guff from my friends because <laughs> usually the first time it cools off after Labor Day, the hat goes on and it stays on. I don't give it 700 degrees. The hat is on until more than likely Mother's Day or Memorial Day, we choose one or the other. And people say, oh, is that silly? You know, you're the only one with a hat. In fact, my, <laughs> my great nephew said to me, uh, Unky he calls me Unky, uh-huh. Unky, what a strange hat. <laughs> he said, You have a funny hat. I said, Never mind, funny hat. <laughs> but I mean, medically speaking, it solved my sinus problem. Because hmm. growing up, I had terrible sinus problems. Huh. And finally, I forget who it was, either the doctor in Rome or, or my doctor here said, wear a hat, it will help. And it really has helped. Wow. Plus it's also my signature. When my hat is on, you know, ladies and gentlemen, summer is definitely over. We are <laughs> on to winter. <laughs> uh,
0: Excellency, let's, let's take a quick break and, uh, and we'll talk about um, some of the spiritual aspects of the fall when we come back. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened. Parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas. Tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank featuring Bishop Frank Caggiano. Uh, So we've been talking about the season of autumn. And Excellency, autumn is often associated with death, which seems morbid. But, you know, we as Catholics, we know that, you know, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains Mm -hmm. alone. But if it dies, Mm -hmm. it bears much fruit. So for Mm -hmm. us, death is the beginning of birth. Sorrow gives Mm -hmm. way to serenity and, and really the tomb
1: leads to resurrection. Yeah, that's very well said. I think there is a very profound Christian interpretation of the fall or autumn that no Christian should forget. Because this, you said it very beautifully, very eloquently. It, we see before us the manifestation of a dying, a natural dying all around us. But don't you think it's odd? that the dying is so beautiful. So you look at the vistas we have in Connecticut, right? And you know, there are days, this may sound crazy, there are days where I actually want the traffic to be horrendous. Hmm. Because if I have enough time to get where I'm going, it forces me to sit in my car and the merit is beautiful in the fall. Yes. Right? Yeah, it is. So you look at all those colors, and, you, and, and the trees are going to shed their leaves, <clears throat> so they go into hibernation, and it's beautiful, and yet they're, they're seemingly, to the appearance, dying. Now, why is it that in human death, we see it as morbid, or ugly, or to be avoided? Because it's still seemingly the end. But in faith, it's not the end. As we have assurance, these trees, please God, will blossom again in the spring. So why do we not in the world of our spiritual life remind ourselves and nurture in us the confident hope that we will do the same? So then Francis of Assisi saw death as a sister and he saw it as something beautiful, as a transition. So in many ways, everywhere in the fall is a parable of Christian reflection. So what do I really believe and how do I emotionally respond to dying? First my own, then those around us, and then the seeming dying of nature. The paradox is right in front of our face. And if you do see it as beautiful, the, the Lord is teaching us in the grammar of nature a profound spiritual lesson.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And to your point, I think the centerpiece, not chronologically, but spiritually of the fall are the feasts of all saints and all souls. hmm which come at the beginning of November. And I think, what, like five, no, maybe it's, no, maybe actually more than that. There's still about six weeks left technically to fall until winter comes, which is right before, at the winter solstice, right? So it's right before the uh, Christmas actually, right? So it actually is chronologically in the middle, if you think about it, which I had not really realized until right now. So, because in my mind, Thanksgiving kind of ends the fall And then Advent starts, right? So that's my Christian kind of way of looking at it. But because that's all about what is the meaning of death? Yes. Right? For those just, those being purified, we pray for them. And then we ask ourselves, where are we in this? What, what, What is it that we are living towards? Yeah. And that's why I find Halloween so objectionable. I'm one of the, I am the Scrooge of Halloween. And I make no apologies for it. (laughs) None. And we could do a podcast just on Halloween so I could get everybody really upset. But Halloween has devolved um, into something which I think is not helpful to our children and certainly not helpful to the adults who celebrate it the way they celebrate it. Yeah. Right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Let's definitely talk about that in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. and, yes, uh, and maybe, <clears throat> maybe mm-hmm. how we should c- celebrate it if we want to celebrate it in a way. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so you pointed out that uh, you know for us as Christians, we kind of think of Advent as the beginning of, of the next season. But right now, liturgically, we're in the middle of ordinary time. But I mean, really, there's no time in the church
1: that's, quote, Ordinary, right, Excellency. I mean, what is this what, season? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, the terminology in my mind is is a bit misleading. Um, I'm not exactly sure in the reform how they got to this thing of ordinary. You know, in the old days, it was Sundays after Pentecost, which I'm not sure what that meant either. In the <laughs> sense, I mean, it's so like every Sundays after Pentecost, but, see it right <clears throat> but but your point is your point is is Why the word ordinary? Another great spiritual lesson. So before God, in the mind and heart of God, there really is nothing ordinary, right? Eternal glory, triumph over death is not ordinary. Uh, Freedom from the slavery of sin is not ordinary. The great communion that we form in heaven, where we will be with everyone whom we have loved, who has accepted this gift of the Lord Jesus, and will be forever with them in perfect joy is certainly not ordinary. Mm -hmm. However, you and I and all our listeners live life ordinarily. Routine is much of our life. That is why these last six months have been such a psychological burden because we don't have routine. Right. And it takes a lot of psychic energy <laughs> to figure out what to do, right? Yes. Kind of make it up as you go along. I'm exa- I've told you, I'm exhausted. Uh, and now that, now that the pace of life has resumed, so I'm back at confirmation so every night, I'm really exhausted <laughs> because you're st- we're still making it up. Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> so what's the insight? What I think is the insight is um the perennial challenge not simply to find God's life in extraordinary moments of suffering or death or triumph, but to, to learn to see with the eyes that recognize God's salvific presence in the routine, in the ordinary. Right? That takes a tremendous amount of spiritual maturity one develops over time because we literally can be lulled into the easier explanation rather than the truer explanation. Hmm. And that's why I find fall such a spiritually fruitful time. Because you have heard me say many times that if it's truth, beauty, and goodness that are the three transcendentals, the three paths built into the very structure of human life that lead us to God, autumn is so beautiful, it literally slaps you in the face. So I get in my car and ordinarily drive up to Bridgeport in 23 and a half minutes from door to door. Don't gauge the speed. (laughs) 23 and a half minutes, door to door, okay? And I'm slapped in the face with the beauty that I see on the merit, for example. Yeah, yeah. So now the extraordinary invades the ordinary and says to me, okay, you think you're a great theological master and you're the the, the great oracle of uh, pastoral life and all the rest, Uh, but let me knock you down a few pegs and recognize I've been sitting next to you all along. I'm here, okay? You are my servant, and I will lead you, though you think you're leading yourself. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Right. Right? So ordinary time, I think, has the the inherent challenge for us to see the world with the eyes of Christ. So now, let me ask you a question. This may sound really odd for me to ask, but we have, for example, in our families, many of us have young children who can be very demanding. It can even be very annoying. <laughs> okay. But playing driveway soccer with my great niece is as theologically and spiritually profound as I getting into the pulpit to preach on a Sunday. Hmm. My audience is bigger on Sunday, but the concretizing for this little girl, that she is worth my time, and that by doing that I am engaging her and giving her in some sense belonging and an and, and affection of love is ordinary and extraordinary at the same time okay while the extraordinary which is the preaching can many times become ordinary hmm. and not move anyone's hearts So the extraordinary needs to remain extraordinary and the ordinary has to be understood as itself an invitation to the extraordinary. So everything's extraordinary and nothing is ordinary in the end. That's the conclusion. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So how many opportunities will you have today? Will I have today to uh, allow the extraordinary to invade the ordinary and say, wow, I'm going to go shop? At Meat Supreme, I'm going to have to go buy two dozen eggs or I'm going to stop and shop and I'm going to buy, you know, the, the chicken fingers that I like to cook when I, when, I have, when I get in late for confirmation and all the rest. And I'm going to meet people, ordinary, you're in your own world. No, 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 no. They're each moment inviting us to understand the extraordinary is there because the Lord is there. The Lord is the definition of extraordinary. Right? Yes. Now, can you always live at that level of awareness? No, no, because I mean, we're sinners, we're, we're, we're limited, we're human. But every once in a while, like, like a whale comes to the surface to breathe, like can we come out of the sea of the ordinary and recognize and acknowledge the extraordinary? What a remarkable way to live a spiritual life. Yeah, yeah. So that I think is what's behind this ordinary season ordinary time yeah and so
0: in our in our day-to-day our our quote ordinary interactions with other people how about some um devotionals that you could recommend for this uh this fall
1: well i think in preparation for all saints and all souls there are many novenas to pray for the dead i would highly highly recommend that for no other reason because if 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 our listeners suffer from the same defects I have, then um, you forget. Mm -hmm. You forget all the people upon whose shoulders you stand who formed you. And, of course, we want to remember our parents and our siblings. But we were formed by more than our parents and siblings. You know, the coaches we had, the teachers we had, the neighbors we had the friends we may have had as young, as young people, young women and men. So the novena for the dead, and there are many, you could get them online, right? mm-hmm. and they were all authentic.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: The beautiful thing is, perhaps a suggestion, is each day recall by name 10 people and pray for them. Hmm. So you start with the obvious. So I'd start with, of course, my parents, my aunts and uncles, etc. But then it would force me to really reflect on my past history and everyone who has helped me to become the person I am and pray for them by name. Yeah. So I think that is a beautiful spiritual exercise in this season when seemingly death is all around us.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also uh, an act of charity if any of them are still in
1: purgatory. So. Without a doubt. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah, without a doubt. Mm-hmm. And, that is one.
0: Uh, Excellency, there's this, um, I think it's an uh, old tradition. It's starting to come back in certain pockets, um, but it's, it's the, the tradition of ember days.
1: Ember days. Mm-hmm.
0: Can you tell us more about what ember days are?
1: Well, uh, my guess is that most of our listeners probably have not heard of them. Okay. I would think. Yeah. You are right. It is, it is slowly coming back. You know, it's, it's funny. First of all, let me just say this. I think there is nothing new in the church. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Yeah. We have seen it all before. And the Ember Days are a perfect example. Because we live in a time when Pope Francis is challenging us for Christian stewardship of the goods God has given us the natural goods, nature, but in fact, the ember days arose in part to give thanks to God for the gifts of nature, Mm -hmm. to teach us how to use them in moderation, and how especially to sacrifice in penance to assist the poor, so that they would have their fair share of the bounty of of the land. It arose out of being an agrarian and rural society. So... We had it for centuries, we lost it in the reform, and now the Holy Father is telling us, we can't forget this. Wow. And I think that's part of the reason the ember days are coming back. Four times a year in the four seasons of the year, right? Three days that would be offered. Wednesday, Thursday, and Saturday. Right? Skipping over Friday, because Friday itself was the day of penance. And there was a, a fast, there was prayer, and there was penance, penance being like offering to the poor. Now, in ancient days, literally you'd offer the poor the bounty of the land. Hmm. And of the four seasons, originally at the beginning there were only two or three, mostly three, then expanded to four. But this, in the fall, was clearly when the ember days were clearly in the mind of of the Christian world because you had the bounty of the land to share and to give thanks to God.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and, and it's good with the fasting and the abstinence. It's
1: almost like a like a quarterly checkup for mm-hmm. ourselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. And you know what, actually, I take that back. I think I, I spoke in error. I think the Ember Days were Wednesdays, Fridays, and Saturdays, and not Thursdays, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong, I, it's one or the other, but if my memory serves me correctly, at least in the ancient church, like yes. in the patristic era, like a Pope St. Leo the great, it would have been Wednesday, Friday and Saturday. Yeah.
0: I, I think you're correct. Excellency.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so forgive me for I have sinned. <laughs> I've, I've, mm. <laughs> I'm the wrong guy to be saying that too.
0: <laughs> um, no, but it's, and it's also a reminder besides the, um, I'm, you know, just listening to you besides the, the reminder of the goodness of God's creation, but the, 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 I'm just going back to the fasting and the abstinence, you know, Mm -hmm. because I feel like we don't do it enough anymore. And, um, you know, we need to.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, uh, what had it done? I mean, well... No, am I... No, 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 you're absolutely correct. I was going to say something. I hope it doesn't offend anyone. But, I mean, we would not give license to a child to make a choice if the child didn't have the proper formation and education to make the choice well. So in many ways, you know, we must do penance every Friday. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Now, honestly, who actually intentionally does it?
0: Yeah.
1: There may be some, but my sense is in the forgetfulness of life, very few Christians sit down and say, this I intend this Friday to be my penance. Right. In the, in, before the reforms, the fact that it was a day of penance and abstinence, Fridays for example, made it almost part of the fabric of Catholic life. But even that could have been abused. So you don't have a hamburger and you go out for a lobster dinner. What does that mean on a Friday? What does that mean? Yeah. Right? Or everyone's favorite food was mac and cheese and pizza. Well, what type of penance is that (laughs) on a Friday? Okay. So I agree with you. We need to have, we need to recover the power of fasting and penance but it has to be intentional and you have to enter into the practice and discipline with an intention. Otherwise it will not achieve what it is meant to do, which it is to, it is meant in part to raise the restlessness and hunger of the heart so that you realize as Augustine has said over and over again, that it is God. Ultimately we are, we are, we are the fabric of our life only is satisfied when we discover God and live in him. So, the pu- the purpose is not to fill yourself with something else that m- allows you to live the rules. It's not meant to be that, and right. that ultimately why they uh, why the bishops of the church lifted the imposition to do penance in a certain way. But sadly, most Christians are not doing penance in any way. Yeah. Right. yeah. So I very much agree. In fact, okay, um, soon, very soon. I will be asking the diocese to do intentional days of fast and penance as we transition to reimposing the obligation to come to Mass mm-hmm. and inviting everyone back to Mass. And part of that is to end the pandemic first and foremost. We offer these sacrifices. To, to we pray for the end of the pandemic. We pray for the forgiveness of our sins, for the times that we have not... Um, lived authentic Christian lives in all of these months because many people were tempted to do many things and to reorient ourselves to the Eucharist because we need to certainly confess our sins, right? So we can receive the Eucharist in a state of grace. So all of that and there's other things that now the great focus is going to be this is our number one priority. The foundation of the church is the Eucharist. Yes. So six months have passed. Now our attention, everyone's collective attention needs to be on this. Yes. Awesome. On the Eucharist. Awesome. (laughs) Excellency,
0: that's awesome. (laughs) Let's, Let's take one more break and we have a listener question when we come back. Great. Veritas Catholic Network is having our first ever pledge drive during the week of October 5th through 9th. And you can join the Veritas family. This is a big moment for us and for you because this is your station. As Mother Angelica used to say, this station is brought to you by you. So please help us make this first pledge drive a huge success. Spread the word and let's get as many people as we can listening to Veritas. And keep your station going strong by supporting us during next month's pledge drive. All right, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, the question that we got um, this week, I think, is so good. Uh, so it's Bishop Frank, how do I practice and increase meekness? And is this different from
1: humility? You no, know, it's interesting. It's a gr- it is a great question. And, 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 you, and thank you for sharing it with me a, a few days ago, because I've been giving it a lot of thought. I think it is really two sides of one coin. So we remember that humility is standing in the dirt of the truth of my life. That's literally where the root is, the Latin word for dirt. You're grounded in the truth is what humility is. It's not groveling. It's not thinking less of yourself. That's ingratitude. It's not thinking more of yourself. That's pride. Humility is the truth. And if we were true of to ourselves, we recognize that many of us are somewhat broken and in dire need of God's grace. And everything we do is is a a blessing and a gift. So, So that is the attitude that animates my relationship with God. And what I'd like to suggest is those who are meek and humble of heart are those that both understand that truth about themselves, standing naked before God in humility, And the meekness is the living out of humility in my relationship with other people. So meekness has come to mean almost like shy and reserved. No meekness is understanding how to react and respond and deal with people who may be smarter than I am. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So pride tells me, listen, uh, pride tells me not to listen and humility says, close your mouth and listen. Right. Or, for example, if someone comes forward and it has a profound spiritual life, you you know that they are in tune with the Lord. Well, meekness says, sit at their feet and learn.
0: Yeah.
1: And meekness can also help us to teach others so if a person comes and is desperately looking for assistance or guidance meekness will help us to teach them not because we are better but because we have this gift god gave us to be shared with others so humility is rooted in the truth and meekness is living out that humility with all the people around us
0: yeah yeah so it's it's not any sort of weakness as you're saying it's it's understanding your right place. Right,
1: right. Which is very hard, extremely hard. Because it's easier to fall back and say, well, you know, I, who am I? Who am I? What do mean, who are you? <laughs> you are who you are and you have your gifts. Because yes. you, you could cop out of doing what you're supposed to be doing. And the same thing, you go barreling in like in secular society. I have all the answers or I'll teach you. A, oh, just be quiet. Sit down, be quiet. <laughs> Honestly, okay. Yeah. Right? So meekness and humility is really actually very difficult. It's very difficult to live authentically. And look at Mother Teresa. Look at Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, you know, if there's a symbol in the modern world of humility, not because she wore the same uh, sari and she... No, but, but she understood the truth of her life. Yeah. She understood when she could speak with authority and power. Yeah. And when she just listened to the stories of those who were dying in the beds of her convent. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's humility, right? And meekness is that related. So she was actually being meek when she was telling the president off at the national prayer breakfast.
0: Yeah. Yeah, was there ever any woman stronger than Mother Teresa? Prom- and,
1: and was there what well, that I don't know, but I mean, I would say but in, in a sense of humility, it was clear how humble she was. Yeah. She, but she, she wasn't afraid either.
0: She had her strength, but she brought it uh, into Correct. the service of the Lord and of exactly. others. Yeah.
1: Exactly. Uh, makes exactly. sense. Makes
0: sense. Mm-hmm. Okay, so uh, if you're listening and you have a question for Bishop Frank, uh, send it on into to us. Uh, you can send it in on the Veritas app on social media, or you can email questions at VeritasCatholic.com. Uh, You can find Bishop Frank on uh, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, Veritas is is on those platforms as well. Excellency, would you please give us your blessing?
1: Absolutely. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We thank you, Lord, for this time we have spent together. And we ask that your Holy Spirit come upon us, most especially upon our listeners, that they may remain joyful, and faithful disciples in mission being the heralds of the good news of salvation in your son Jesus. Bless them, protect them, and keep them safe in your love. For we ask this in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. My friend,
0: I'll see you next week. Thanks, Excellency. See ya.